if we want to pay our taxes, our workers, we have to physically transfer that money, literally in a suitcase, up to South Sudan. This is really high risk, but we had no choice. You know, six hours to drive cash and deposit it and then six hours to drive back is incredibly inefficient. In this day and age, most well-run companies have few issues when it comes to paying their workers, depositing money into their bank accounts or transferring money from one place to another. But what if you work somewhere that's a little riskier than the average place? Or for a company that doesn't sit neatly into any kind of familiar category? Something as simple as a bank transfer can be pretty tricky. And that's when people end up having to physically move thousands of dollars of cash in vans across states and countries, sometimes at great personal risk. But why are companies, legitimate companies, still resorting to such basic measures? This is episode five of Euromoney's podcast, Treasury and Turbulence, Banking at the Frontier, and is presented by me, Kanika Seigel, Euromoney's Transaction Services Editor. This podcast is supported by City, Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 98 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies and help them manage their international trade and financial flows. Make sure you keep listening until the end of the podcast to hear our specialist content editor, Charlie Corbett, speak with City's Ebru Pakan for the in-house view. So my name is Charlie Tryon. I'm Chief Executive of Maris Limited, uh, an African-focused investment company. Our principal focus is investing in and building small to medium-sized enterprises or businesses across some of Africa's toughest jurisdictions. Maris works in eight countries in southern and eastern Africa, in places including South Sudan, Zimbabwe and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sudan, South Sudan, Zimbabwe and the DRC are all on US Treasury sanctions lists, which are enforced by the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC. Doing legitimate business in or near a sanctioned country, however, can be a minefield. In fact, Charlie remembers when, back in 2011, his team worked with major telecoms company Zane in southern Sudan, before the region became an independent country in its own right. At the time, Sudan was on the US Treasury sanctions list, but the South was exempt, so working in the region should have been fair game. But despite the fact that Maris had taken out all of the precautions it could, filled out all of the appropriate paperwork, worked through all of the appropriate legal channels, and made sure that they had permission from OFAC to carry out these transactions, any money transfers between Maris and Zane into Sudan was stopped. So they were frozen by international banks. And it would take a huge amount of work to unpick the funds out of the system. I mean, it would require international travel, long meetings, lobbying. I think it was really down to the international banks not caring. I mean, it was, you know, there are very few transactions that involve South Sudan. And I think they saw Sudan as one country. They hadn't cared to look at the sort of finer details. But the result was... I mean, really about three years of complexity in our business, where every time we remitted money or were paid by customers for work, 
And this applied to our hotel as well, where we were being paid by, in some cases, a DFID, a British government programme. If they mentioned South Sudan in any banking transaction, we had our funds frozen. And you can imagine the disruption on a business when you never know whether payment electronically is going to reach your bank account. For Charlie and others like him, delays in cross-border payments are often more than just a little inconvenient. At worst, they can paralyse corporate activity. Add to this the fact that sometimes the banking infrastructure in some of these countries is rudimentary at best. Businesses are forced to innovate. So generally, we, we actually, in the case of the forestry business, we sell timber to buyers in Uganda. So we get paid in cash in Uganda into bank accounts. But if we want to pay our taxes, our workers, or any of our local obligations in South Sudan, we have to physically transfer that money, literally in a suitcase, up to South Sudan. Wow. What do you think is the biggest amount of cash that you've had to physically transfer within South Sudan? If you can disclose that. (laughs) I've had to carry up to $100,000, which is as much as I would ever want to carry in. And within our sort of risk management as a business, we wouldn't permit more than that. It might require having to do two trips if you needed to move $200,000, but it's quite a daunting prospect getting on an aeroplane and flying into a country where there's a civil war with $100,000 in your suitcase. For Charlie, these delays aren't life-or-death situations. But for others, it may well be. So my name is Rashid Boumnigel. I'm the Deputy Director for Humanitarian Action Aid UK. Rashid has worked in some of the world's most difficult disaster areas, such as the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan in 2013, Indonesia after the tsunami in 2018, and more recently in Mozambique after Cyclone Idai hit earlier this year. During such critical times, response needs to be quick and access to cash on the ground is essential to the relief effort. Rashid has just returned from a follow-up trip to Southeast Asia where he relayed some of the issues that he had when managing money transfers from the UK to Indonesia. One of the issues that we had to deal with at the the beginning of the response was slow transfers. The partner on the ground was quite new, so... Errors were made in the in the, in the transfer, and, and and that can have implications. Transfer of what do you? Uh, the bank bank transfer oh, essentially right, okay. from action aid to. Yeah. So sometimes when when that happens and when there's an error is flagged, that then has longer term implications because it goes through a more rigorous checking yeah, process. Of course, yeah. So that you know can sometimes happen in yeah. in, in. So what happened? What the was context. the error? Was it just kind of? It was a there was, was, there was a there was a typo error. So then oh, it no. essentially. Um, got blocked okay. uh, and then was resent but because it was blocked because it was flagged yeah. that meant that it was it had to go through a more rigorous and lengthy process and we couldn't actually get information about what was happening with the transfer so that that That's was a crazy. bit of an issue so there's some sister some sometimes a lack of transparency i think yeah. around you know what what happens when there are errors what happens when there are delays in transfers yeah. that i think definitely you know banks could could get better at <laughs> when something as simple as a typo brings international payments to a halt where this can severely delay the humanitarian relief effort on the ground, the responsibility to find a solution falls with the NGO or charity, not their banking partners. If we are yeah. waiting for funds from a, from a transfer, we'll, we'll often move money around and prioritise the purchase of goods for food distribution or negotiate with the supplier to, to, pay, you know, to, pay, to, pay, a, to pay a bit later. 
And unfortunately for charities like ActionAid, this is yet another cash management issue associated with working in cash-based emerging and frontier markets, one that they could probably do without. I, I worked in DRC kind of, what was it? Yeah, start from the beginning. Years, so, yeah, yeah. Two, 2008 to 2010. So conflict-affected area, responding to a number of different conflicts uh, and also working in IDP camps in one particular town. So this context, you know, there were no banks where we were working. There was very small microfinance organisations. So we would transfer some money through for some costs through the microfinance organisations because some of our local partners were actually using them. But then a lot of the time, because we were paying... We had to have both dollar and local currency. Mm-hmm. We would be bringing up fifty thousand dollars in hard cash on a twelve-hour drive. I mean, this is really, really high risk, but we had no choice. For Rashid, he believes that banks should be more invested in the relationships they have with charities. So it really is crucial that that we get timely transfers, mm. or at least if we're clear about the timeline okay. uh, and, and, and are able to manage that, we, we would be able to plan with communities accordingly. Mm. If and, and I do believe this has happened. If, if banks could guarantee a certain number of days, yeah. Um, yeah. really guarantee it and, and somehow do checks in advance. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's transferring like a pound or, so, you know, a small <laughs> amount just to test yeah. the process. I believe that that's something that the banks should do. That's part of the service. But the reason behind banks' apparent disinterest in some of these places goes beyond prejudice, and delays in payments go deeper than just simple administrative errors. In reality, some banks believe that they can no longer afford to work in some of the world's riskiest places, which is largely because of the compliance costs associated with them. This is Tony Wicks, Head of Financial Crime Compliance at SWIFT. Obviously, the the cost of compliance is something that's significant for institutions. A very large proportion of transactions, uh, you know, could be up to 10% of transactions would require some additional level of compliance checks associated with them. And so, uh, especially where you are dealing with what might be considered to be high-risk countries or to other areas which would be related to high-risk businesses or identified businesses that, that may have related risks, then there would will be additional levels of checks that would be applied. And obviously things like charities, uh, money service bureaus, um, the defence industry, all of these are areas where additional checks would typically be applied as part of a compliance process. What Tony goes on to explain is that when the amount of business you do with an institution is of smaller value than the fixed costs associated with this business, this leads to de-risking, exiting relationships and closing the accounts of clients. If banks were to continue with these relationships without carrying out the appropriate compliance measures, however, they could face heavy fines. Between 2010 and 2018, fines for banks that breached OFAC sanctions were over $16 billion. In April this year, Unicredit pleaded guilty to charges that allowed Iranian customers to conduct transactions in violation of sanctions the bank is due to pay $1.3 billion as part of the settlement. Just before that, Standard Chartered was fined $1.1 billion due to violations of a number of sanctions relating to Burma, Cuba, Iran, Sudan and Syria. 
So, if it comes down to a choice between a delayed payment or a heavy fine, then the bank is going to choose something that's not going to ruin their balance sheet or their reputation. This is Catherine Steger, Executive Director for Public Sector and Development Organisations at Standard Chartered. A year or so ago, when our financial compliance teams had a request to transfer quite a large sum of funds to a charity based in Iraq, that charity was sent a customer of Standard Chartered's, but one of our, a customer of one of our correspondent banks who wanted to make a payment through ourselves. The purpose of that funding was described as being children's clothing, schooling, medical supplies. It was seemed very legitimate. The charity wasn't on any sanctions list. But when we did further investigation, that indicated the charity was likely being used to support a terrorist group. So in that instance, we stopped that transfer. We alerted the authorities. And that's something that comes about through the regular transaction screening. And that's something I should stress that is done across all payments. That's not something that's particular to charities. You know, unfortunately, those instances do occasionally come up, but that's something that is part of the standard reviews. But not all financial institutions are shying away from this business. Where more nimble players can cut compliance costs, using technology, for example, there are huge opportunities to be had. This is Brad Winbigler, Treasurer and Head of Payments Finance at Western Union, based in Colorado. My observation is separation is occurring. Uh, I think the de-risking in mass was a story that was probably true four years ago say that banks who take the time to understand overwhelmingly support. In many cases, banks are, in all cases, actually, they they, they leave those sessions with a lot of compliments around what we've done. And so I think it's the nuance here, perhaps, is that it's not monolithic, it's not in mass. Story is more nuanced. And those who are taking the time to invest, I think, do enjoy the support of banks who understand that it is a risk-based approach. Their obligation is to conduct enhanced due diligence. Western Union isn't a traditional bank, but it also supports cross-border transactions and remittances all over the world, working with appropriate bank partners to do so. In fact, Western Union does support money transfers to places such as Syria and Iraq, which are both on sanctions lists. We don't shy away from what others might consider to be challenging market opportunities. Fundamentally, our identity is about helping many of these areas. So, Uh, I think the commitment and perseverance to to solving the unique uh, challenges in each market is what sets us apart. You know, in the case of Syria, for example, we have restricted the network to very specific areas and with specific agents. We're working with 30 agent locations in Syria currently. We're investing significantly in training and and understanding and also auditing our network to ensure that the kinds of standards are being followed. That's why, for example, you might reduce the size of the network in Syria to some more very manageable number. So yes, it's a risk-based approach and we understand that the risks there are among some of the riskiest But this commitment comes at a cost. In January 2018, the company was fined $60 million for violations of New York Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering laws. While this isn't strictly related to working in countries that have sanctions placed upon them, it does highlight the fine line that some of these institutions tread when it comes to working across borders. But as Tony mentions... This isn't just about where you work, but the kind of business you do. And that can have an impact even in some of the most developed and safer countries in the world. My name is Jeremy Unruh. I'm the Director of Regulatory Affairs for a company called Pharmacan. We are known as an MSO or a multi-state operator. We are one of a, of a expanding handful of cannabis companies in the United States that has a presence in uh, multiple states. In the US, 
Cannabis is a Schedule I controlled substance, according to federal law, which means that no prescriptions may be written for them and that they are not readily available for clinical use. But in the US, the medical use of cannabis is legal in 33 states, and in 10 of them, so is its recreational use. So what does this mean for legitimate cannabis companies working across state lines? Well, generally, banks don't want anything to do with them because they could be prosecuted under a federal law for banking them. In the United States, banking is largely regulated by the federal government. Now, each state has a a state banking regulator, but they are in large part simply executing the policies set by our Department of Treasury or our Federal Reserve. So our inability to access financial services is a tremendous inefficiency. Companies like Jeremy's find it difficult to access a wide range of banking products and services, like getting insurance, paying his employees through standardised payroll systems, accessing finance and transferring money from one place to another. Many of the services that other legitimate businesses working in the US take for granted. And just like those stories where Charlie and Rashid have had to transfer thousands of dollars across borders, well, Jeremy has had to do something quite similar. You know, six hours to drive cash and deposit it, and then six hours to drive back is rather than simply wiring or otherwise electronically moving those funds, you know, across the state is incredibly inefficient. We store cash, we buy safes to put cash in, and each one of our dispensaries has a cash tracker safe, which means it essentially counts the cash as you deposit it in there. As is the case with Western Union in certain geographies, new players at the state level are filling the financial services gap for cannabis companies in the US. This is Sandy Seafried, the CEO of Partner Colorado Credit Union, which banks cannabis companies in the state. The federal government says it's illegal, you can't do it, and most banks won't touch it until the federal government says it's not a Schedule One drug. And yet at the same time, FinCEN issues guidance that says you need to follow all these steps if you're going to bank the industry. So we actually took that and said, well, everybody wants the money bank because it's safer and there's a higher level of accountability. And I said to my board, legislation is going to have to catch up to doing the right thing here. Is there, there, I mean, do you see the cannabis industry in the US, is it perceived in a similar fashion to, say, a company in the DRC or working in South Sudan, for instance, where, where the risk is so high that banks might just not be willing to take it on? Yes, I do. I, I, I see that everybody thinks that maybe when it's descheduled, rescheduled, or no longer, you know, schedule one uh, drug and classification, that everybody, but every bank's going to get into it. And I say that's not true. So you take a money service business and you put it on, you know, heavy steroids in terms of BSA requirements and KYC requirements, and now you have a cannabis program. So because everybody does not have every every bank and credit union does not have a, a a sufficient allocation of bank secrecy resources to handle money service businesses they're not going to get into cannabis one thing that could change the game however is complete transparency over when where and how money is moving from one place to another swift's global payment initiative or gpi launched in 2016 is a tool which allows end-to-end payment tracking, including which correspondent banks are used in the process and where fees occur. 
This creates a paper trail for companies and banks that may allow cross-border transactions to run much more smoothly. This is Tony again. Uh, GPI is actually essentially a new rule book and a new approach to uh, making cross-border payments. It actually speeds those payments because it ensures certain characteristics of the payments up front. And then it provides this transparency in terms of the tracking capability. Um, and that tracking capability is is really like the, the FedEx parcel tracking that you would get uh, associated with an order. Um, you know, you can see where the payment is, you can see where it is within the network, and then you can understand you know, how long it's going to take in order to be actually ultimately delivered. That is something that is being used widely now by Swift GPI-connected institutions and a number of corporates. And those institutions are also allowing their corporates to be able to see the information from the GPI tracker. You would make payments from a situation which uh, previously would have been that you would have uh, sent your payment instruction and then actually just essentially had to wait and where actually the confirmation would have probably come indirectly from the beneficiary rather than through the banking chain itself. So I think that that provides an enormous change in terms of that process and for all uh, corporates yeah. should actually enable them but also just to understand that they've actually those payments have actually successfully been delivered to their destinations. But until something like Swift GPI is widely and regularly used, corporates will have to make sure that their payments go through the old-fashioned way, by talking through the process with their bank partners. This is Catherine from Standard Chartered again. The key in ensuring that charities can be supported in getting critical funds to where they need to be is open channels of communication. If a charity is looking at doing a payment um, or a program in a market that they expect may be difficult, then having an early conversation, you know, if I have that conversation with, with a charity, we would bring in the relevant teams well in advance of them looking to do that activity or do those payments so that we can ensure the right people are comfortable, that where there are appropriate licenses, where there's been a programme review that that has been gone through and properly recorded because that would generally mean that provided everything is legitimate, appropriate and within our risk appetite and something we, we can support, that's then appropriately um, recorded as such, which would mean there shouldn't be any delays in such a payment. Cross-border transactions are naturally complex because in reality, moving money from one country to another can involve a number of different countries and partners that may not be apparent at the start. Technology is creating transparency, however, which will hopefully make life a little easier for those working in some of the world's riskiest places. And now over to Charlie Corbett, Euromoney's specialist content editor for the City In-House View. Today I'm going to be speaking to Ebru Patkan, who is head of Treasury and Trade Solutions for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at City. Ebru has worked with companies all over the world, helping them manage their cash and payments, maximise liquidity and oil the wheels of cross-border trade in some of the most politically and economically challenging places on earth. Welcome, Ebru. Thank you. Good to see you today. Um, now, I want to start by asking, uh, in your personal experience, uh, what would you say is the single biggest obstacle a company faces when, when doing business across borders in these kind of frontier markets? They really need to think about what are some of the left field events 
that can either happen in that market or in the neighboring markets, which can suddenly change all the all the you know in and outs for them. And that requires a huge amount of agility and flexibility in the structures that they build. So even today, I would say the more centralized and centrally governed a treasury organization is, it makes the visibility control and ability to react to events a lot better and faster. So that that continues to be, I think, an overarching theme. Ebru, looking ahead, what developments or new technology do you think will make the biggest difference to treasurers operating across borders in these these difficult markets? I think I will touch upon the positives and the negatives, because every piece of technology, it's almost like there's an anti-technology or an anti-advantage, you know, anti I guess it's a disadvantage that one needs to consider. And what I say about, what I mean about that is, as we know, there are many new instant payments and various versions of instant payments infrastructures, which are being rolled out across the globe. There is already more than 20 markets where there is a real-time payment infrastructure. The infrastructure itself doesn't necessarily immediately change the world, but it allows the banks and non-banks and certainly corporates to think about new type of services or solutions that they could be building on those instant payment rails. As you do that, there are lots of advantages. So if you're a utility company, And if you're collecting from a whole bunch of individuals, of course, being able to give them the ability and give yourself the ability to have a real-time collection improves your time to access cash and apply that cash. And and, and that's a a big positive. But when you start living in a real-time instant payment world, which is likely to be 24 by 7, Over time, I think we're going to see a lot of implications on how we collectively as an industry manage liquidity. If you have clients in countries, let's say Libya, for example, where there might suddenly be a breakdown in in peace or government, is there a kind of a checklist you follow uh, to help a client in those those kinds of situations? I wouldn't quite call it a checklist as such, but but I think whenever we have clients who's trying to operate in, in difficult parts of the world, we do take a very keen interest to understand exactly what problem they are trying to solve for. There are definitely certain no-go areas for us in terms of the regulations that we have to abide by. And those conversations may not take place, but there are lots of other places where there are so many gray areas and nuances, and it's very important to get to the finite detail of exactly what problem that one is trying to solve for. Thank you very much, Every One last question would be, if you had to give only one piece of advice to a treasurer heading off to a frontier market uh, for the first time, what would that be? I think... It would be really to spend ample time on the ground by talking to peers, talking to partner banks, talking to stakeholders to really understand that market. Ebru Patkan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. This podcast was produced, presented and edited by me, Kanika Snigel, with support from Mango Productions. 
with help and leadership from our head of digital, Chris Hunt, and our project manager, Mia Bailey. The City In-House View was reported by Euromoney Specialist Content Editor, Charlie Corbett. And thanks to support from City. For all the latest coverage on transaction services, please visit euromoney.com forward slash transaction services. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. And if you want to get involved in any of our future podcasts, please email podcasts at euromoney.com. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the series, leave us a review and recommend us to any friends and colleagues that have a passion for corporate treasury.